my friends, and welcome to this, another episode of the Underdog Football Show. I'm Josh Norris. Hayden Winks will be joining me shortly, along with a plethora, a plethora of guests. Before we get there, though, do want to remind you to play on Underdog Fantasy. We just launched an awesome tournament. If you're tuning into this show, I know you'll love it. $10 entry, $25,000 in prizes. It's only first and second year players. We call it rookies and sophomores. Shout out to Nick Rudman for coming up with the idea. Just four person drafts, 12 rounds, quarterback, running back, and then wide receivers and tight ends. It's so much fun. If you try it out once, I know you're going to fall in love with it. It's already filled 20% on day one. So go and check it out. You'll see it at the front page and use promo code Josh Norris when you sign in. So today's show, it's all about nailing your mock draft. We want you to get the best info. And over the next two shows, we're going to talk to people very close to the top 10 teams, the top 10 selections. These are picks one through five. We start off with John Shipley, who covers the Jacksonville Jaguars. The New York Jets is Connor Rogers from Bleacher Report. We've got Cal Posey and the San Francisco 49ers. My friend Charles McDonald of For the Win on the Atlanta Falcons. And five is the legend Joe Goodberry. Trust me, I've been doing this for a while. I trust these people and their word about the direction that these teams are going in. I want you to succeed in your mock draft. I want to succeed. And these conversations that we have about their first round picks, and then also the other directions their draft might go. I know you're going to enjoy them. Tell one friend if you enjoy the show, rate and review. Let's get going. We obviously have to start with the first overall pick, the Jacksonville Jaguars, and no one better, in my opinion, than John Shipley, who covers the Jaguars for the Jaguar Report, a longtime supporter of the team, someone who knows the team extremely well. And John, lucky for you, you don't have to guess on who the number one selection is. So it's going to be Trevor Lawrence. And I, I think the best way to ask this first question is to say that since we know it's Trevor Lawrence and they've built around him this offseason, obviously already having DJ Chark and James Robinson and LaVisca Chenault and bringing in Marvin Jones, with Dare Bevel coming in and being the play caller, from your perspective, what do you think the fit's going to be like? Yeah, no, I, I honestly think it's going to be a good fit because when I went back and looked at some of the things that, you know, some of the tendencies of Daryl Bevel, you know, in Detroit and both in Seattle, they mesh, you know, with what Trevor Lawrence does well. You know, he did a lot of RPOs at Clemson and he also took a lot of downfield shots, you know, a lot of, you know, they asked him to play a lot of hero ball, you know, especially in yeah. 2020. And I, I, I really think, you know, Bevel is the kind of offensive coordinator that, you know, for, for as much as people like to think about his Seattle offenses as ground and pound and maybe bland, they were always up there in terms of explosive plays in the passing game, you know? So they, they like to set up plays downfield. So I really do think he's going to be kind of a natural fit in it just because they're going to ask him to do a lot of things that he did well at Clemson. Uh, I, I don't think obviously, you know, going to be a screen heavy or things like that, but, and I, I don't think it's even going to resemble even urban Myers offense from Ohio state that much. Obviously they're going to work around some of his tendencies that he likes, but I think it's going to look more so like bevels in both in Detroit and Seattle. And I think Lawrence is a good fit for that. Yeah, that was gonna be my question. Who's gonna win out, Urban Meyer or, or Bevel? And then the part two of that is how much do we think uh Trevor Lawrence is gonna actually run the ball? Because Urban Meyer's history with dual threat quarterbacks is deep, all the way back to bowling green. I'm expecting Trevor Lawrence to run a ton. Obviously, for fantasy purposes, that's the gold mine. We already know that Trevor Lawrence can sling the ball around, but how much do you think he's actually gonna run the ball? 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the Jaguars, you know, they're going to build their offense around Myers, like I said, his core principles. But at the end of the day, I think Bevel and Brian Schoenheimer are both going to have giant hands, if not equal hands, and kind of forming the offensive plan. But at the end of the day, Bevel is also going to be the one calling plays. So for as much influence as Meyer has, Bevel will be, you know, at the end of the day, the final decision maker when it comes to putting what plays Trevor is going to run. And then in terms of running, I, I, I don't think, you know, maybe to expect him to have you know, any kind of ludicrous role like some of past Meyer quarterbacks who have just, you know, kind of been used as battering rams. But it really wouldn't surprise me to see them, you know, use him often in the red zone just because, you know, he was so successful at Clemson at taking some of those keepers and taking them to the corner. And where his speed is most impressive is, you know, when he has like that about that 20 yard range where he can show his, you know, explosiveness and how he builds up speed. If we can get some inside the five-yard line, some quarterback power like he ran at Clemson at times, that would uh, help us a lot. Okay, we, we talked about the weapons that they added. Hmm. And Marvin Jones obviously had some in place. From the outside looking in, I think a lot of people, at least in our football bubble, get excited about LaVisca Chenault possibly playing a role that was somewhat similar to Percy Harvin and Curtis Samuel. I mean, the list is pretty long. Paris Campbell even. Um, at at Ohio State and Florida days, what do you see as the vision of of how if that type of wide receiver usage is going to be used this season, or Lavisca Chenault specifically? Yeah, no, I really think they're going to be a team that has a deep rotation at receiver. You know, you think about Myers' past offenses at Ohio State, and you know when I mentioned his philosophies, a big philosophy has of his has always been you know rotations and a deep depth chart at wide receiver. So I think they're going to take advantage of all the people they have. You know, uh, between DJ Chark, Lavisca Chenault, and Marvin Jones, that's already a lot of targets you have to devy up. And then he have guys. They also added like Philip Percet, Jamal Agnew, and also Colin Johnson, who who truthfully kind of outdid my expectations last year. And I, I really don't think they're a team that isn't inclined to not take a receiver at this point either because they're still missing kind of a true slot, a shifty guy on their receiver. And if, if Philip Dorsett is your best pure definition of a burner on your roster, then you probably need to be in the market you know, for keep, keep, keep looking for other ones. But I, I think they're going to let LaVisca Chenault play more actual receiver this year than kind of he did last year last year I, I was honestly disappointed with how uh, Jay Gruden used him just because so many of his reps will he run at one at Colorado were deep down the field you know because he's such a physical receiver with the ball in the air that it's just hard for defenders to really keep up with him at the catch point but his average depth of target was among the lowest in the entire NFL <laughs> last year you know he was he was a screen machine and yep. I, I get it I get it because of his yard after the catch I get the appeal but this is a guy who's a legitimate receiver, and I think the Jaguars are going to use him that way this year. The Jaguars have multiple picks around the round one, round two turn. Do you think they're more likely to draft a running back as like a threat to James Robinson's role or another receiver that just like completely muddies up this this receiver role? And I, I'm just wondering what the James Robinson projection is. Like obviously he he almost didn't come off the field for like a 15 week stretch at all. No one's expecting that to happen. But like, are, are they going to try to find his replacement? Do they just want him to be an early down role? What kind of role do they expect for him in year two? 
I'm not sure they're going to try to find a replacement as much as they're going to try to find somebody who can compliment him. You know, I, I, I don't think they want to go into next year with the same idea of uh, James Robinson is our back for, you know, 90, 90% of the plays that we're going to have this season. For, for as talented as uh, James Robinson is, and he's certainly deserving of all the praise he got, and he's certainly deserving of a big role. You know, there, there are definitely aspects of his game that you can add another player to to kind of take advantage and compliment him. You know, for as good of a player as he is, he isn't the most dynamic athlete, especially in terms of long speed. He had a longer lot, a lot of uh, long runs last year where he ended up getting caught from behind. So he's explosive in short areas, but the Jaguars, they seem like a team that wants to add speed at a position. Uh, Trent Balky openly said they wanted to get more explosive and then they went out and signed Carlos Hyde. So I'm not, I'm not really sure that, that, that fit that criteria quite yet. So I wouldn't be surprised truthfully to see them pick a running back at any of those 25, 33, 45. It, it obviously at 25 would be a ludicrous decision for multiple reasons, but I mean, a, a general manager like, Trent Baalke and a first-year head coach like Urban Meyer, I really don't think they're going to care about the positional value of the position because, I mean, Baalke, one of his biggest tendencies at San Francisco was not caring about positional value and just going and get his guy. So we're saying a lot of positive things about the Jaguars roster, but ultimately they're a team that finished with the worst record in the NFL and the number one overall pick. They do have 10 selections in this draft, and John, you know this. Typically when you see a team having 10 selections – like six of them are in round six and round seven. That's absolutely not the case here with the Jaguars. Nine of those 10 are in the fifth round and earlier, and seven are within pick 130 and below. I mean, that's insane draft capital. You mentioned the number one overall pick, 25, 33, 45. So look, this roster has holes. What are some other areas where you expect them to attack early in the draft in round one and even on day two and early day three for as much as they say they love their offensive line. And, you know, I've been making this point that urban Meyer to this point and his public comments made about the roster and what they need to do. He's been pretty honest and straightforward. You know, they've almost done to a T what he has said they would do. So when he says he's confident in their offensive line for this year, I believe him when he says that with that said, looking at that line, they have few long-term options, you know, Cam Robinson's franchise tag, both guards are in contract years, and Brandon Linder has two years remaining. And Jawan Taylor, for as much as I liked him pre-draft, the jury's still out on him. So I really think offensive line could be a position they take advantage of, kind of the strength there. Whether that be an offensive tackle, even taking a swing on an interior lineman like Landon Dickerson or Creed Humphrey early. And then tight end is another position where it, it, it's weird because what they need is a pass-catching tight end. And this is certainly not the draft class really, you know, the fine one those because, you know, out of my top three tight ends, only one of them, obviously Kyle Pitts really projects in my opinion, as you know, kind of a top tier pass catcher. I, I like Pat Fryermuth a ton, but I'm just not sure he's going to be a guy who is anything more than a Kyle Rudolph type impact in the passing game. With that said, he makes sense for the Jaguars just because his position coach at Penn state is the Jaguars tight end coach. Now they know him as well as any other tight end prospect, you know, in the country or as any, team probably knows him and they would know exactly how to slot him in there. So I really wouldn't be surprised to see them pick him at 33. John Shepley. Thanks so much, buddy. Really appreciate you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you guys. I appreciate it. And keep up the awesome work. This has been awesome. (laughs) The New York jets sit at pick number two. That means we had to get Connor Rogers with us. NFL draft writer for Bleacher report on camera personality for Bleacher report. Super excited for their draft weekend stream. Connor, Feels like just based on the buzz, we know exactly who the pick is going to be here at number two, Zach Wilson. How do you feel about it and his fit here with Robert Sala, Joe Douglas, and the rest of the Jets organization? 
Yeah, it's kind of lost the surprise factor, right? It's felt <laughs> like this for months. And then, you know, Joe Douglas even kind of laughs uh, after the pro day when asked about it. So, you know, listen, I think this is a really nice landing spot, a good fit in terms of scheme for Zach Wilson. When you look at the staff that's been brought over from San Francisco, uh, I understand why a lot of people are never going to believe in the Jets developing a quarterback. And, you know, we do need to see it before it ever happens. But I think when you look at it, it came down here to me between Justin Fields and Zach Wilson. And I think they're both top five players in this class. I think it's just a matter of what you want your offense to do. And it's clear that uh, this is an offense that will rely on a lot of timing, a quick release, uh, you know, the signing of Corey Davis, they, they feel like they have two contested catch guys now and him and Mims where maybe they, you know, not just intermediate middle of the field, but push the ball down the field and, you make the argument that Zach Wilson's got the best deep ball placement out of anyone in this class. So I think it would be interesting being in that room and having a debate between him and Justin Fields because Fields is a phenomenal prospect in his own way as well. But it's good that at least the Jets had the recognition that the Sam Darnold era had to come to an end. It was best for both sides uh, to move on and that this quarterback class is pretty special. I mean, I think the four between Lawrence, Wilson, Fields and Lance can be really special franchise passers and to, to not get cute with it, not trade out and capitalize on it now. And, and now they have to do a better job developing him and putting the right pieces around him than they did with Sam Darnold. I think the biggest transition issues with Wilson is going to be inside the pocket. I mean, BYU's offensive line was insane. Obviously, they didn't play that many pass rushers either. So how do you think he's going to do when the pocket isn't like 10 yards wide? Because that's what was happening uh, at BYU last year. What do, you, what do you think his transition is going to be like? Yeah, it's a great question because you look at it and like even Brady Christensen on that line will probably be a top 100 pick. So there's yeah. legit NFL talent on that line. And uh, the Jets line is absolutely incomplete. And Mekhi Becton was a really nice ad at left tackle. George Fant surprised a lot of people, including myself, being a middle of the pack right tackle and, and something I don't think he had played up to yet. But the interior is a mess and, and it's not that different. And that's where you look at pick 23 or 34 and you say, we really got to clean this up. Uh, you hope that any offensive coach that's not Adam Gase, by default, the offense improves. I think that's something that is a justified, like, blind faith. But it's a great question with Wilson because how is he going to be in pressure? And I think he's very nimble in and out of the pocket. And I do think those quick body lightning mechanics can help him. But it's not going to be perfect from day one, right? You're going to have to give him easy throws. You're Now look at the 49ers. They've been one of the more successful screen teams. And I think that you look at the Jets now and go, they're going to have to not replicate that to perfection because by default, they just won't. But right. can they do you know 75% of that, right? You kept Jamison Crowder, who's been good on screens. You have Mims and Corey Davis, who are two very good blocking wide receivers. You're trying to get more athletic on the offensive line for more wide zone running opportunities. So maybe your play action can actually threaten this year. And they didn't run enough play action under Gates with Darnold as it was. They didn't cut the field in half enough. So yeah, Hayden, it's a great question because you look at it and you're sitting there and you're going, things are not going to be perfect a lot for Zach Wilson, and we need to see how that translates. But you need to make it as quarterback friendly as possible with screens, with cutting the field in the half, doing what he does best, throwing on the run, uh, and just trying to make life a little bit easier on him. And, and really, the last two years, they never did that for Sam, which is just mind boggling. So you hope that with the new staff, that changes and, and kind of covers up some of those, I don't want to say flaws, but growing pains that a rookie quarterback is going to go through. That's an interesting conversation because, look, it's not like the rest of the league can just copy what Kyle Shanahan is doing because exactly. you have to match the players to fit that. But 
if we can speak about it simplistically, you know, Mike LaFleur has worked under Kyle Shanahan, yet the receivers he has on this team are quite different than the wide receivers on the 49ers. I actually think they match up well to go back to what you were saying, Connor, with Zach Wilson, because one of the things that Wilson did so well at BYU was trust his wide receivers to just be better, more athletic than their opponents at the level of college football he played. And there were a ton of contested catches that he relied on them to make and having Corey Davis and especially Denzel Mims to do that. But then my question is like, we just hear about all these, you know, easy manufactured open targets over the middle field and having these yards after catch threats like San Francisco had Jameson Crowder might be the only one of those three that necessarily shines or even is successful in that area. So I'm fascinated to see what this Jets offense looks like in year one. It's spot on because then you get into the the needs category and it's almost like we don't discuss enough, even after signing Corey Davis, even after signing Keelan Cole, which is a nice bargain deal for a, what for your fourth wide receiver. And he might be the fifth wide receiver when they get to camp. You look at it and you go, okay, well, signing Corey Davis for that guaranteed money was probably the first sign, the writing on the wall, they were taking Wilson because he's someone that is going to want those guys that can, I don't want to say bail him out, but go up and make a play. It's what he did in college. I mean, it's not that different. And all young quarterbacks should have players like that. But you're absolutely right. Like Crowder's been pretty good after the catch, even an offense that was very, very poor. But you need more than that. It makes you wonder, like at 34, are they quietly looking at Rondell Moore? Somebody that would hmm. be electric and can get in, you know, jet sweeps. You can use him in motion. You can use him in different screens. You can just find ways to get the ball in his hands to create his own yards. Even in the backfield, they don't have a player like that. Like Michael Pirine's not that guy that they drafted last year. Uh, the running backs that they brought back on this roster, uh, there's no clear-cut starter and nobody that really creates their own yards. And even at tight end, we've been waiting for the Chris Herndon breakout, and we just haven't really had it. He had a really nice rookie season, and that's been that. So you're absolutely right that it's very incomplete. And I think when you look at it, it makes you wonder how aggressive they'll be in this draft, right? Because they have second pick, they have the 23rd pick, 34th pick, and then 66. You have to wonder if that second rounder that they acquired for Sam in 2022, if they use that to trade back into a round or, did, you know, how did they use the extra Seattle third rounder, the extra Giants fifth rounder, just a plethora of picks. And I would say this is the class to be aggressive. You need somebody that can create their own yards at wide receiver and, and take the top off the defense a little bit. And it's kind of been an underrated need for the Jets. Yeah, the biggest thing for fantasy for us is the running back spot and I think that Travis Etienne probably fits the Shanahan LaFleur offense the best out of the consensus top three. Uh, do you think that he's a target at 23? And then if if it's not Etienne, let's say he goes to the Dolphins or somewhere somewhere else, is there a day two running back that kind of fits that mold? I mean, it's not going to be the Najee Harris guy, I, I wouldn't think at least. Yeah, I think you're onto something there. I just think, you know, I love Etienne. He's an exciting player. He brings a home run threat and, and, you know, once again, creating his own yards that they don't have. I think he could play all three levels of the position, even got better in pass protection over the years. I think it's just too rich for Joe Douglas taking him at 23 or 34. This is a team that's, it's a bad roster and it's, it's a, you know, a very thin roster from the era they just got out of. And, in that case, like, can you use a premium selection on a running back? And maybe they will, maybe they'll surprise us, but, I think it goes back to that Seattle third rounder and you look at Kenny Gainwell, you look at Michael Carter. Those are the two guys that fit the system. We know they can catch the ball. We know they have the burst to get to the outside. We know they can make someone miss on the outside. They're just two players that make a lot more sense. And maybe it's even pick 66, right? Maybe they reach a little because they're like, 
hey, we have we don't have anything at running back that we feel great about right now, unless you think Tevin Coleman's going to stay healthy this year, which is a bit of a prayer. So I think the more likelihood is they take one of those round three runners that fit the, fit the scheme and just take their swings at more premium positions early on. Before we get you out of here, quick reset. We talked about pick number two. You mentioned it. They have 23, 34, 66, 86, 107. I mean, those are some very valuable picks than the top four rounds. Connor, I followed your work for a very long time. You can be shy about it, but I know you're fairly connected. I know that you have looked up Joe Douglas's critical factors in the past and what he likes. When you look at the board, when you look at the whole roster and the needs or areas of improvement, what are maybe one or two fits that you just see with prospects that you think would be ideal plug-and-play players or ones that you think the Jets might target? Well, I think in a perfect world at 23, and this was probably a month ago, they were sitting there and going, hey, can Elijah Vera Tucker fall to us at 23? Because we know he can thrive in our zone scheme at left guard next to Makai Becton from day one. And Becton's somebody that had to come off the field a decent bit last year, and we can have him play left tackle in a pinch. I just think those days got away from us, guys. I think Vera Tucker's going way earlier than that. There's too many teams in front of them that need offensive line. You make the same argument for Tevin Jenkins, someone I think they really, really like. And I just, I don't, does he get by the Raiders at 17? Like that's, it seems early, but he's a great player and he's played both sides of the line. And so I think you're looking at it. I know this for a fact. Robert Sala is always going to bang the table for more help in the front four. And they're thin at corner, as thin at corner as they are. He'd rather beef up the front four. They went out and gave Carl Lawson a lot of money. They put Sheldon, they you know went out and signed Sheldon Rankins to play next to Quinn Williams. And they got Vinnie Curry for passing down, situational, rotational player. I still think edge rusher is in play at 23. I look at Azizo Jalari and Jalen Phillips and, and think you have to circle those guys with a red pen and say they're absolutely in play because J.C. Horn, Patrick Sertain, they're not going to be there. If Greg Newsom or Caleb Farley are, they're great players, but they have significant injury concerns in their past. Can the Jets take injury concerns with the amount of needs they have? I don't know if they can. So I look at Ojulari and Phillips on the edge, and I think Sala, uh, he'll be yelling in that draft room for more edge help. That wouldn't surprise me. Like I said, those two names of the offensive line make so much sense for this offense. It's just a question of if they get there. And quite frankly, right now, it would be a surprise if they did. The entire draft process has focused on the number three overall selection. So I have to call in big favor. Kyle Posey, Niners Nation, joins us here. Kyle, I'm going to do it to you. I know this is all you've talked about probably. You're sick of talking about it. But let's start here. Who do you believe is going to be the number three pick in this draft? I think it's Justin Fields, and I say that pretty confidently. Why? There are a lot of moving parts, obviously, and – We heard early on that it was Mac Jones. We can use our critical thinking skills and put two and two together and say it's probably not Mac Jones. Kyle Shannon has spoken that he wants a quarterback who can he can build from the ground up, essentially, with arm strength, with athleticism, with a good size, big body. That brings us to Lance and Justin Fields. The common theme here is that Fields is the guy who is ready to start where, you know, a lot of times we get that Lance, Lance needs a city year. So people are pairing Lance to the 49ers because Jimmy Garoppolo is still on the roster. In my opinion, we have a chance to see the highest upside quarterback, quote unquote. To me, that is Justin Fields because we've seen him at his very best against Clemson dominate the highest competition. We've also seen him struggle knowing what he can do, knowing that we have a glimpse of what his potential can be. 
I think if you just tie in the factors with whole John Beck that he's been working with him, not just these past two weeks, but throughout the draft season. And then his toughness goes a long way. And every time Kyle Shanahan spoke, it felt like over the past couple of seasons, he's spoken about toughness at the position. And as you see in Clem- in the Clemson game, he came back from the injury where it seemed like he was playing with freaking broken ribs and he didn't miss a beat. And all of those reasons, you know, when you t- tie in his athleticism, his accuracy, because again, People say Mac Jones because he's accurate. What does that make Justin Fields then? So um, all of these signs, I feel like they've been pointing to Justin Fields, but for whatever reason, the the, the national media has been resistant to that. Yeah. Can, can we just take a step back and maybe hypothesize why everyone thought it was Mac Jones at first? Is it just generalizing, stereotyping the types of quarterbacks Kyle has had in the past and just thinking that Mac Jones fits that mold more than any others in this group. Was that as simple as that? So it goes to just all the narratives that we get throughout the draft process every year. You think Mac Jones, you think pro ready, despite he's started the same amount of games as Trey Lance, despite that he has a ton of yards coming off of RPOs and screens, despite him losing quarterback competitions literally every year that he's been at Alabama. Why does this never get brought up? So, uh, yeah, for me, that's why I feel like, you know, we can rule out Mac Jones because competitor, like we have to go back to that. And um, I think that would be the biggest reason I would rule out Mac. Now let's pretend that it is either Trey Lance or Justin Fields. How many games do you think Jimmy Garoppolo would start if you'd be on the roster at all? And then the second part is how does the offense change with those two guys compared to the the pocket passers? Is it going to be more deep shots? Obviously, you're going to get a little more rushing elements. Is there anything else to the offense in general? I would imagine that Jimmy is not on the roster come the start of the second round. I uh, this is another to and I've spoke about this off air a little bit to some other guys. To me, this whole Mac Jones was a giant distraction to get everybody from not talking about Jimmy Garoppolo being traded because that is the biggest elephant in the room right now that we still have not really discussed. But he's a goner, and there's no way that you know Justin Fields is going to be if if Justin Fields is a pick, you're not going to have Jimmy Garoppolo on the team with him. And I think that Lance is a lot more pro ready than people tend to give him credit for. I would actually go as far to say he is more pro ready than Fields or Mac Jones. So I don't see why you would need Jimmy Garoppolo on the roster if that is the case. So yeah, I would say second round, um, Jimmy's gone. And then as far as the offense goes, I mean, we're opening up Pandora's box here just because, you know, you have there hasn't been a lot of bootlegs just with Jimmy on the team. So there's that whole element being able to throw on the run a lot of POs outside of the numbers, stretching the field, not just vertically, but horizontally. They just can't throw the ball outside the numbers with number 10 on the field. That is not going to be an issue with either of these two because they have bazookas attached to their right shoulder. (laughs) <laughs> uh, before we move on from this position, I kind of want to continue what you just said and kind of just ask why they made this move. I mean, I know there were injuries to Jimmy in the last two years. Kyle, I feel like you and I have exchanged messages, at least tweets saying, hey, those close to the team might not think as highly of Jimmy as the fan base does. And I think a lot of us have watched and, and can understand why that is. Um, But this is like such a massive move to make. I mean, it's not only the number three selection, it's two future first rounders. It's a third rounder as well. Right. So like, I I, I mean, what compelled them? Is it just because they feel so good about this roster? They were just a few plays away from winning the Super Bowl two years ago and probably considered and thought that they had the best roster in the NFL at that time, too. 
I think it's all all of the above is the answer. So a lot of it, you know, when we're talking about the fan base, it's always wins and losses. It's never about the process. It's never about the games where if you just go back to week one, 2019, they won 31 to 14. They had two pick sixes in that game. And one of the touchdowns that Tampa Bay scored was because the quarterback threw an interception. All of these get left out of the process when you talk about wins and losses. But I think that the talent on the field. So the 49ers roster is loaded and you know that, and they're, they've been bringing in veterans all off season. So that was kind of pointing to the fact that they would be comfortable with a rookie quarterback, in my opinion. And then you have the whole injury thing where he hasn't been reliable in two of the past three seasons. So uh, again, everything just points to the fact that they are going all in and Everyone, you know, every year you say next year is going to be a better draft class. No, next year is going to be a better draft class. I feel like for the first time in a long time, the top quarterbacks in this draft class deserve to go as high as they are going to go. And the 49ers knew and Kyle Shannon said it. We felt like we didn't want to get left at the altar were his words. So I feel like moving up to number three instead of getting the best of the rest, the best that was left over. Now they're in a position to, you know, get their guy, which who brings us back to fields. Uh, real quick about the running backs, the fantasy community is looking at Raheem Mostert as the 1A and then uh, Will, Jeffrey Wilson as, as the 1B. Do you think that there's a chance that the 49ers spend like a top 100 pick on a running back to muddy that up? And then if not, do you think it's just going to be Mostert as the 1A again? So I would not be surprised at all because Wilson and Mostert are both not going to be under contract after this season and they tend to project a year out. So with that in mind, they they just had Wayne Gallman in as a visit. Wayne Gallman is not going to stop you from using a top 100 pick on a running back. So I kind of hope so, just because, you know, there's so much talk about, you know, running backs don't matter. I think there's a couple of guys, for example, like Michael Carter, the UNC guy, the third down back, who would be great in the 49ers offense. And of course, Najee Harris would be, but he'd be great in any offense. So that's not really saying anything. So um, I would not be surprised if there is a running back selected earlier than we think. So we talked about the number three pick. The 49ers also have the 43rd, 102, 117. So four selections, I believe, inside the top four rounds. Any other positions? We just spoke so highly of the roster right now. Any other positions or areas of need where you expect them to target? So they're going to have to – more than likely they're going to add an edge rusher, and I would imagine that is going to be the next target. So Samson Ebicom is going to play full-time edge rusher. He did not do that with the Rams, so there's going to be a little projection there, and there's going to be a learning curve for him. Um, D. Ford, probably not going to be able to count on him. Nick Bosa, fresh off an ACL. He's going to be a stub, but it might take a couple weeks or so to get there. So outside of those two, you have Eric Armstead. So there's not really an edge rusher that you would trust, which is why I think you know, they would be looking at the top of the second round, whoever falls. I think that guy is going to be Joe Tryon, and I would not be surprised Ooh. if they moved up to get him. Oh, I love that. Just big picture question here, Kyle. Like, this is a team in back-to-back years that has made massive trades. I mean, the DeForest Buckner trade after being so close to a Super Bowl kind of felt like a step back, but it was really forward thinking because they had some real process there. Obviously, this moving up for a quarterback. What's it like to like be so close, so attached to a team that is like so open and honest about their process and isn't scared to do and make these big moves? 
There is never a dull moment with this team, and that's probably the most fascinating part. They swing for the fences. If they want to be aggressive and make a move, they are going to, and they have done so every step of the way. But even with Emmanuel Sanders, uh, it was middle of the season. They were struggling to get production on the outside. So what do they do to prop up Debo Samuel? They bring in a veteran, help him learn the game, and all of a sudden Debo takes off, and Sanders was Sanders. He was great. But they just, time after time, you know, they're always making these moves. So I love it. I I think that it's fun. It makes the team entertaining, and it always gives the fans something to talk about. This team is never short on content, that's for sure. It is a true crossroads moment for the Atlanta Falcons here at number four. (laughs) We bring on my friend. Charles McDonald. I had to start off with a joke, Charles. All right. Oh, yeah. Sure, joke. So so it's two sides to this. It's two lanes headed in either direction. Either the Falcons recognize that this is a historic quarterback class with talents at the top and deeper at the top of the position that is uncommon. Or they write it out with a new journal manager, new head coach with Matt Ryan, Julio Jones, and try to win with this little window that they have. Charles, which direction do you think they go in? Well, I think it's the the little part of the window is uh, very important because I think they wasted a good amount of their their window over uh, the past few years. So, I mean, if I was them, I think this is a no brainer. Like, you take the quarterback. Like you said, this is the top of uh, a pretty historic quarterback class. I mean, I, I can't really imagine a time like where you're at the fourth overall pick and you're looking at QB four and you're like, all right, I'll take that guy. Like, no problem. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I think the, for the Falcons, like this is the perfect spot to take one because if all like if things go well, you're not picking here again anytime soon. And I don't think that this says that much about, at least to me, I don't think it says that much about Matt Ryan, because I think that, you know, even with the current personnel, like even if you don't take Kyle Pitts, if Arthur Smith is as good as a play caller as we think he is, and there's really no reason that Matt Ryan can't have like somewhat of a bounce back campaign uh this year especially if julio jones can stay healthy like i don't really see why you know the falcons offense couldn't approach top 10 status if if everyone stays healthy so uh it's not really about him it's just more about the opportunity cost of having you know the fourth overall pick your quarterback is 36 years old even with the contract restructure there's still a way to get out of it after this season uh it just kind of makes a lot of sense to uh to take the quarterback now and i i mean I'll say this as a spoiled Falcons fan, like as bad as, <laughs> as bad as some of the losses have been, like basically the entire time that I've been a fan, there's really only been one year where you didn't have like a certain quarterback. And that was after Vic, you know, had the scandal and went to prison for that one year. So I'm not here for this post Matt Ryan quarterback thing where we got to figure it out on the fly. Let's just take the guy while we have him now and uh, hope that we can make like, you know, the next year or two of Matt Ryan's career, like as best as it can be after that. But at, at this spot in the draft, I think you just got to take the quarterback. Do you have a preference between Trey Lance, Justin Fields? Do you think the team has one? I, I keep seeing them connected to Trey Lance uh, when they when they're not talking about Kyle Pitts. It seems like it's Trey Lance over Justin Fields, but I don't know if that's just because people think that the 49ers are going to draft uh, Fields. So I well, have no idea. And Tawson Mac Jones in there too because he might be available at four. We have no clue. I don't. Yeah, care. I, I knew Charles wasn't going to sign off on that, so this, <laughs> I'm not going to bother with that. Mac Jones could be available whenever. I don't. I'm not interested. Uh, I think we need to do a little bit better than that. And also, like, like the 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 thing with Mac Jones, especially with regards to the Falcons, is, uh, you know, with the Falcons, you're not talking about a guy that's going to play this year. Like, you're talking about an upside swing, and I just don't see the big benefit of sitting Mac Jones on the bench for a year. Like, I'm sure it would yeah. benefit him, but from a long-term status, I just don't really see how that's moving the needle for you. But in terms of 
uh, Lancer Fields, you know, I, I was Lance heavy at first, but uh, and I do think that his upside is like basically the same spot as Justin Fields. Like, I think that if both of them hit how they're supposed to, like that could be, you know, a guy that's flirting with like top five quarterback status or top five quarterback reduction on a year to year basis if they end up as good as they can be. But uh, I think that Fields is probably the better player right now. And that gives you a little bit uh, a higher level of assurance that that works out for you in the future. So I think that. You know, Fields works. Lance also works, too, because, you know, it's not like he's going to be thrown into a situation where he has to play right away. Uh, he's going to get to sit behind Matt Ryan. And Matt Ryan, like, he's he's at least said publicly that that's something that he would be willing to do, like kind of mentor a young quarterback. So either one's fine. Uh, but I do think that Fields is a better player than Lance right now. Well, let's go in the opposite direction. Let's say, and I think this is the likeliest outcome, that Kyle Pitts is the selection here at number four. Because – they would take him, and we've heard this from other places, that a lot of teams have Kyle Pitts as the number one player on their draft board. So what does this offense look like with Kyle Pitts and Calvin Ridley and Julio Jones and Matt Ryan? What does that offense look like? I mean, I'll say this. If they take Kyle Pitts, there is, like, no grace period for Arthur Smith whatsoever. Like, you got to get this thing moving immediately. And, I mean, look, like Julio Jones, Kyle Pitts, Calvin Ridley, like, that's a really good start. And I think that – uh, Mike Je- Mike uh, Mike Davis is a better player than Todd Gurley was last year. So, you know, you have pieces. Uh, but the thing is, like, if you pick Kyle Pitts, your clock starts that second that that pick goes in instead of giving yourself uh, a little bit of a window. Because like I said before, Matt Ryan's going to be 36 this year, 37 next year. Uh, the clock's ticking. Uh, and, you know, I, I also, like, just from a schematic standpoint, I would love to see what Arthur Smith does with Kyle Pitts' offense because – He's like a much different player than Johnny Smith was last year. And I think you need to create a bigger role for him uh, if he comes into the offense. But, I mean, if he's someone that can't figure out how to get Kyle Pitts involved in offense and he has no business being head coach. Quick follow-up here, Hayden, before I let you talk. Like, this Arthur Smith offense in the last few years has been great. It's been highly efficient in Tennessee. But they have been among the lowest in just pass attempts across the league for, for multiple years. Now, they're great throwing the football down the field. They've been tremendous in the red zone. Can Arthur Smith just copy and paste, control-C, control-V, the offense like he had in Tennessee when you have, theoretically, Kyle Pitts, Calvin Ridley, and Julio Jones? Like, it's not going to be Mike Davis in the exact same role as Derrick Henry, right? I don't think that you can copy and paste that just because Mike Davis, I think he's a solid running back. He's not Derrick Henry. And uh, I think the Falcons have like a couple pieces on their offensive line with Jake Matthews and uh, Chris Lindstrom, but overall, you know, I don't think that their offensive line is as good. As, like when it comes to run blocking, I don't think that they can really compare to Tennessee. So, uh, I don't think you want to copy and paste it. But also, like, I don't think you want to copy and paste it because just if like we're going to compare receiving cores, uh, I'd rather have Julio Jones and Calvin Ridley than AJ Brown and Corey Davis. So, you know, I th- I think it's going to take some tweaking, but. I don't think that that's the thing that should really scare you if you're a Falcons fan because, I mean, they, he's already shown the ability to construct a drop-back passing game, and basically you're just saying throw the ball more than you have recently. So hopefully that works out for them this year. Yeah, I'm just looking at neutral pass rates, and obviously this is a lame question, but it really matters for fantasy is, like the Titans were down like the 40th, like like 40 40% on neutral pass rate. The Falcons were like in the 50s. And that's like a huge difference for like players like Mike Davis – I'm anticipating that the Falcons are actually going to pass more than the Titans, just like 
how you said the offensive line might not be as good. I think Matt Ryan's just a better player than Ryan Tannehill. Um, do you think that's pretty accurate or no? Yeah, I mean, I hope so. Uh, I think last year was last year was kind of weird for Matt Ryan because he had some really good performances, but there was also like like I don't feel comfortable blaming all of his struggles on Dirk Cotter. I think that a, a part of it is just I mean, he's getting older. He was drafted in two thousand eight. Uh, that's a long time ago. I mean, we've already seen Joe Flacco essentially become a backup in that same amount of time, uh, and they were drafted at the same time. So uh, I, I do I do think that he's declining a little bit, but I don't – like, I, I, I see, I don't want to say that he'll come in here like Ryan Tannehill did and be, like, top three in adjusted yards per attempt and pass rate and stuff like that. But, you know, for him to pull out, like, a, a top seven, eight – or top eight passing season, I think that that's totally – reasonable projection to have for this offense you know again assuming that everyone stays healthy and the the tweaks that arthur smith makes to run pass ratio how he uses some of the receivers uh also works out for them the team has three picks in rounds two through four and then another three picks in round five do we think mike davis is safe i mean to me right now he's one of the best values on on underdog as like the 81st overall pick just ahead of Leonard Fournette and, and Ronald Jones. I think if he gets the lead back workload and I'm really crossing my fingers, he might be a top 50 player this year. Yeah, I do think he gets the, I, well, I say, I guess, I guess I think he gets a starting role. I definitely expect him to add it back at some point in the draft. I mean, they just cut uh, Ito Smith a couple of days ago. Um, I, I don't really see, you know, I, I think Mac Davis is a good player. I don't know if I want him just like unquestionably leading a rushing attack. So, you know, I look at someone like Trey Sermon, who I think would be, you know, yep. if, if you can get him in pairing with Mike Davis, you're probably cool on running back for this year. And then you can, you know, reassess that situation with Mike Davis next year. But just to start things off, yeah, I think he'll, he'll probably get the lead back role. And then as a, a rookie starts to get ingratiated into the offense, we'll see how that, kind of splits out but you know I, i'm with you like if he's i didn't know he was rated that low like on fancy stuff because i i definitely think he's going to get the bulk of the carries for an offense that should you know at least have their 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 passing situation be better than it was last year yeah and there were games last year where he had like 8 10 12 targets and he was absolutely capable in the passing game too all right we'll get you out in this one we talked about number four quite a bit there's pick 35 68 108 in those top four rounds you mentioned offensive line this certainly seems like a defense that has lost pieces or overpaid in certain areas over the last few years. That's probably an understatement. Where other positions, what other positions do you see the Falcons targeting in this draft? Safety and pass rusher have to be the biggest ones. I mean, their safety room basically got obliterated from last year. Uh, Ricardo Allen being gone, I don't think that surprises anyone, but they weren't able to get anything done with Keanu Neal and DeMonte KZ, who I think both went to Dallas. I'm not, I don't remember KZ exactly. Uh, and the only thing, the only person that they've signed so far is Eric Harris from the Raiders. And I, you know, not to, to be mean, but like, if you've watched him, I think you can understand <laughs> that that second round pick, if they took a safety, I don't think anyone should be surprised. So safety, just because like, they don't really have any bodies there, uh, outside of, you know, the kid they drafted last year, uh, Jalen Hawkins of California. And now like Eric Harris is kind of basically all they got. So safety, uh, pass rusher, Dante Fowler was just a massive disappointment last year. And I know that Dante says he's hurt. Raheem Morris said that it just, it, it was kind of a bad signing. Uh, so we'll see how that works out this year. I know he, he took a pay cut, but they still need multiple edge rushers. Uh, and, you know, a corner wouldn't hurt either because, I'm not quite sold that Isaiah Oliver's 
you know, coming back to life by being a slot cornerback is something that's going to stick forever. And they could use someone uh, across from AJ Terrell, who was like weirdly solid as a rookie, which mm-hmm. I don't think that I was, or most people were expecting, uh, but you got a piece there. But I mean, as a whole, the defense is pretty thin, especially like I said, a pass rusher and a safety. So I think those are two spots they really need to target in the draft. Charles McDonald, senior writer for the win. Thanks so much, buddy. Appreciate you. Thank you. The team that last year had the number one overall selection now is at number five, the Cincinnati Bengals. And there was only one man, I should say one legend I could get in touch with to come on this show. And his name is Joe Goodberry. Joe, thrilled to talk to you. So glad it's recorded for everyone out there to hear as well. Like I mentioned, the Cincinnati Bengals have their quarterback. I'm sure that feels wonderful. And where they're sitting now at five, they basically can say, hey, we have the top two players on our board, and we're going to get one of those two. So, Joe, tell us, who do you think the top two players are on the Bengals board? Oh, I think it's pretty easy. I mean, number one, Penny Sewell, when you need an offensive lineman and there's a guy like this that's 20 years old and gigantic and for the most part without length, but he's got good size and athleticism, rare blend, actually. Um, and that played as well as he did at 18 and 19 years old last time we saw him on on the field. He's going to rank high on thinking a lot of people's boards. But uh, the other guy is Jamar Chase. And Again, we're going to, similar things here where I think a guy at 19 does what he does, you take notice of it. And in fact, Jamar Chase did it in the SEC and against a bunch of highly rated and highly drafted corners that had decent rookie years too already. I think that just bodes well for Jamar and the fact that he played with Joe Burrow, I think is a little bit of a factor and maybe a little bit of an, of an edge or a push over the edge to uh, maybe even lean that way. I'm not confused. Curious why you didn't mention one Kyle Pitts. Do we just think like he's gone at number four? Or do you think that they just value an outside playmaking receiver who has played with Joe Burrow and then a left tackle to secure the offensive line more? And then, Joe, I, I will ask you because this has become a meme during draft season of do you take the wide receiver or do you take the left tackle? Which side do you fall on of that equation? Yeah, I don't, I don't mention Kyle Pitts mostly because the rumblings are that they don't have him there. Uh, and it's not so much that I feel they don't think he's a special player. or I think everyone can see that and look at that. I, I think the conversation for maybe some um, old school teams, and I don't know that the Bengals are, but they may see tight end, and that may be a disservice to Kyle Pitts and everything he can do, but I do feel they see it that way. And 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 for a lot of teams, that may rank behind a, right, like you said, a number one boundary receiver or a future left tackle. So I, I think that's where it's at, and they're just not going to get to that point where they have to make that decision unless it's a trade back. So uh, having said that, you know, the rest of the roster, the way it's constructed, they have a lot of holes, right? Yeah. You don't pick number one and then number five without needing a lot of things. So, uh, you know, I think it's hard for me when I when I, when I see this team and say um, they should draft for need because normally I'm a like, okay, let the board fall to you and, and it is what it is, right? But I think because Sewell and Chase do fit needs, and I, I think that is part of the conversation because a lot of people say you have Tyler Boyd and T. Higgins. That may be your best position group on the team. Yeah. The Bengals play three wide receivers as much as anybody. And they gave AJ Green 110 targets last year. You have to <laughs> replace that 110 targets. It was a bad 110 targets too. Yeah, it's awful. It was, yeah. It was like low percentage type stuff. He caught 45%, at least in the league, lowest yards per separation per target. I mean, you could upgrade with a Jamar chase there and instantly impact your offense from a passing standpoint. 
and they did sign some offensive linemen. They did get rid of some guys or bench some guys that were the worst um, violators of Joe Burrow on that offensive line. They get rid of the offensive line coach. They bring in a new offensive line coach. I do think because of it, because of all those factors, Jamar Chase is going to be above Penny Sewell on their board. Nice. Um, I struggle with it a little bit because I, I the fear factor, right? The, the the need to protect Burrow scares me. But like like probably everyone you're going to talk to, you got to look at the draft as a whole. And this may be like last year's historic wide receiver draft where I felt like you're going to get a first round guy in round two, and yeah. you did. Denzel Mims, T. Higgins, Bengals got, were were benefactories of one of those. I think they're going to be in that same position, but with offensive line this year. Yeah, and Duke Tobin said a very similar thing. He said there will be guys available in the second round, third round that we have starter grades on. And then he also said we think having healthy guys there and then the addition of Riley Reef that they feel good about the offensive line compared to last year. So my question is, is the true need at offensive line actually on the interior, center and guard and not at tackle? Because to me, from an outsider's perspective, I see Jonah Williams. I see Riley Reef. That's probably their two best offensive linemen. Those are the two tackles. And I think that Riley Reef didn't want to play guard right. in Minnesota. So I don't think that – I think there's probably a plan for him to actually play right tackle. So I'm with you. I think that they are going to draft Jamar Chase just because I think they're going to draft guards and centers on day two and not an actual offensive tackle here. Well, I agree completely. I think right guard right now is the hole. If anything, they may have a couple guys that can battle out at left guard and Xavier Suofilo and Quentin Spain. Those guys have played in the league. They can be decent, at least. They can get you through a year if you need to. They like Trey Hopkins at center. He tore his ACL the last uh, week 17 yep. of last year. Billy Price is there. I mean, that it is a former first-round pick. That was drafted by Frank Pollock, who now is, again, their offensive line coach. I do wonder if he thinks he can play better than he did the last two years under Jim Turner. To me, the hole right now is right guard. If they had to line up and play right now, you're going to take a career left guard, either Xavier Suofilo or Quentin Spain, and plug him in at right guard. I don't think that's ideal. So even if the Bengals did take Penny Sewell, and I think he would start his career at right guard. And that's okay because I think as a 20-year-old, he does have some technique issue. He does he he does need some reps. He does need live action. And I think the best place to get him that without hurting your quarterback or your you know your passing offense would probably be to stick him at guard. But I think you go into round two, and there's going to be guys. And it doesn't have to be a, a strictly guard. I think, you know, Landon Nickerson or, or maybe a Ben Cleveland. I, I think it could be an Alex Leatherwood or a Samuel Cosme, a guy that can play guard. And Riley Reef, Reef is a one-year deal. He moves on next year, and that guy kicks out to right tackle. I think that is probably the best way to handle it, but I do think they probably select two offensive linemen within the first four picks. So Zach Taylor, the head coach, is 6-25-1, entering his third season as head coach. Joe Goodberry, who is Zach Taylor? <laughs> That's the question. I know. The, any podcast I've been on, and especially nationally, they ask the same question, and I don't have an answer. I think that's the hardest part about this. When you look at a, a rookie quarterback in that four- to five-year window of, all right, let's ro- load up this roster, let's strike, let's make sure we've got the right guys, let's make sure we've got the right coaching staff, it's a finite resource, right? A finite window. You can still be open beyond that if you've got everything going in, in your organization. But we're, we're talking about the Bengals here, and that's probably where we're looking at a four- or five-year window. You don't want to waste two of those years with Zach Taylor if he's not the guy. It's weird, though. They have led in a lot of games. They have lost a lot of one-score games that they probably should yeah. not have lost. Uh, a little bit more 
roster or, or talent on this roster. A little bit better quarterback play here or there can overcome some of the deficiencies. I like their aggressiveness. I like their fourth down decision making. I like some of the things they do. I don't know what system they run because they keep switching it, it seems like, on offense and defense to suit their players. I want that. That is a trait I want in my coach, but I also want a staple that they can fall back on and say, okay, that's what they're going to do when things aren't working. And we still don't know what that is yet. We still don't know what Zach Taylor is. I got a fantasy question for you. Is this going to be the year Joe Mixon actually performs like a week in, week out, top 10, maybe like top six, top seven fantasy running back? Like obviously Gio Bernard has just been the thorn in in his side here. Do you think Joe Mixon can actually be like a 80, 90% snap player for them? You know, I think so. I think Giovanni Bernard was a big a big reason why he was released isn't because of Gio. I think they love Gio. They love his role. I think he was still really good in his role. And really the money they saved, three point something million dollars. Is it really worth it? You're going to spend that money on anything to get an upgrade? Probably not. I think the idea here is Mixon makes a lot of money, right? Mixon was paid to be an every down back. Coming out of college, I thought it was Christian McCaffrey, Joe Mixon, and then yep. Elvin Kamara, maybe. I mean, Leonard, Leonard Fournette's out here catching more passes than Joe Mixon. That's not yeah. right. <laughs> so when I, I look back at it, I go, man, they got to get him on the field. He, You can't be in a, in a two-minute situation at halftime or at the end of the game. Gio's out there and Mixon's on the bench. That's I don't want that. I don't think the team wanted that. So they said, okay. Uh, they extended Samaj P. Ryan, who's not much of a passing game back, but you can give him a 10 carries if you need to in a game. Maybe more carries for P. Ryan, more catches for Mixon, more passing game duties for Mixon. And if he does that, I think he will be worth more. But uh, Bengals players seem to always be volatile in, in terms of fantasy. Even A.J. Green would go multiple weeks with really doing nothing and then be touchdown dependent. Chad Johnson was always that way. Uh, Jeremy Hill did that too. So I just don't know if, if history is on their side in terms of uh, being a consistent every you know first-round guy that really makes it worth it. So quick reset here. Number five, we expect Jamar Chase. Number 38, whatever best offensive lineman is on their board. So 69, 111, 149, only three picks in rounds three through five. What other areas do you expect this team to try to improve in? Because they've lost a lot of defensive talents over the last few years to other teams as well. Yeah, that's right. Defensive line, really, uh, you know, you lose Carl Lawson, you lose Geno Atkins, you lose Carlos Dunlap. That is your core. That's your three pass rushers. Now they do sign a Trey Hendrickson, uh, which that's, if at best, maybe that's a one for one what you lost with Carl Lawson. I think he's not much of a creator, but maybe he's the cleanup guy. You know, I still think they're missing that creator. Then they're going to have to spend. I wouldn't be surprised if some first round edge guy is still sitting there at thirty eight, and they go, "We like we said, we still like the offensive line depth here. It could be a guy in the third and fourth round. We could double up there and take it, and we've got to bypass it. And analysts are going to kill them if they go wide receiver, defensive end. But you." You kind of got to play the board. You have to get a pass rusher in here. They usually play with three pass rushers. They've got about 600 snaps available for defensive end. I think it has to be a third-round pick and see who's there. I hate going into round three, round four, looking for an immediate contributor or pass rusher. These guys get overdrafted. You're probably not taking a guy that's in the top five or ten of your board. You're taking based on need, and that's not when they've drafted well. I do think an underrated guy could at 69, if he's still there, is probably Milton Williams from Louisiana Tech. Um, he just seems like their kind of pick. They, it seemed like they paid a lot of attention to him at that pro day. Uh, man, I would give them an A-plus if they picked that. We're an explosive, up-the-field penetrator that I think can do a lot, and I think he's just now scratching the surface of what he can be. The police are coming because if you get him at 69, they're going <laughs> to arrest steal. someone. That's a robbery. <laughs> I'm looking at like 38 overall, I know. Joe Goodberry. Um, by the way, after a decade of asking, 
the Bengals have like finally tried to get athletic at linebacker, like some speed there, you know? So Joe, I, I need to ask you because you are tried and true. You are consistently there for this team. How do you feel as a Bengal fan right now, as a Bengal supporter right now, when looking at this team and looking at this roster? You know, I, I am always on the side of a quarterback can take you further than you know you expect or further than the roster sometimes appears. Sometimes guys all of a sudden are like, man, that guard can block. That tight end's decent. That fourth receiver can catch all of a sudden and run good routes. How'd this happen? Because the quarterback's really good. And I do think Joe Burrow can be that. And if he is, well, then I like this roster a little bit more. If they nail this draft class, I like it even more. Of course, that's the positive spin of it. They have a lot of holes. I think the defense is bad. I think the defense, unless a guy like Logan Wilson just turns it up in year two, the linebacker unit is a bunch of unknowns. I like Akeem Davis-Gaither, but, I mean, there's nothing to say right now that he's going to be a good player this next year. I It's hopeful stuff. You know, the defensive line is thin. It's it's they're missing stars on the on the defensive side other than Jesse Bates, who's an absolute stud. Oh, my God, what a pleasure to watch there. But you're going to have to score 35 a game on offense. And I think that's part of why they look at this and say this will be an offensive heavy draft again. They've gone offense first, second round for the past three years. I think they'll do it again and, and go wide receiver O-line. And if you can do that and I'm looking at this offense and if Joe Mixon's healthy and plays well and you've got three receivers, I think Jamar Chase, T. Higgins, Tyler Boyd. If Chase is what we think he can be, I I like that. Let's roll. You're giving weapons to Joe Burrow. You come back and there's a good offensive lineman around too. I think your your old line can sustain for a year. That will at least be fun to watch. All right, that's it for this episode. Again, we'll have another one, pick six through 10 on Monday morning. Big draft week ahead. We're going to have episodes on Monday, on Tuesday, obviously on Thursday, and a few live streams sprinkled in as well. Go and check out the Underdog Fantasy YouTube page. And if you go and play rookies and sophomores, Hayden actually has a great outline of roster construction, of rankings, of strategy on underblog.underdogfantasy.com. It's where we're posting all of our prospect rankings, and I'll have a mock draft out on Thursday as well this week, and obviously plenty of content there next week for NFL Draft Week as well. Lots of stuff ahead. Thanks to Hayden. Thanks to producer BMAC. I'm Josh, up the villa. Talk to y'all soon. See ya.